Yeah, well, Merry Christmas, everybody. My name is Brett, one of the pastors here, for those of you who are new. And today we continue our series titled Rise and Falls. We continue to look at some of the high points and low points of the life of King David, Israel's greatest king. Now, you may be asking, isn't it Christmas time? Why are we looking at King David when we ought to be talking about the birth of the Messiah? Well, when Matthew begins his gospel, he, he launches into the genealogy and talking about Jesus by referring to Jesus as who? The son of David. So as we prepare to celebrate Christmas and the, the coming of Christ and the life he lived and the death he died, who better to study than the one whom he's named after? And not just David himself, but really the lives of those closest to him who he most impacted through the things that he did. And so today I want to take a look at, at how David impacted a specific group of men in his, in his life that the Bible refers to as David's mighty men. Now these were some of his closest companions. They were like the Navy SEALs of his day who, who fought in his army and they were with him through thick and through thin. So we're going to look at some of the highlights from their lives and see what we can learn from them when it comes to us being the kind of church that like David impacts the world around us for the glory of God. Now, the scriptures we're going to read today, I'm going to read them out of, in chronological order, but they're written in the opposite order in the book of 2 Samuel. So we're going to actually work our way backwards, but you can follow along on the screen or in your Bible that you brought with you. So starting in 2 Samuel, verse 23, verses 20 and 23 says, And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab, they're some of their best warriors, he also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. He was renowned among David's mighty men, and David set him over his bodyguard. We jump back to verses 13 through 17. It says, And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Then we jump back two chapters to 2 Samuel 21, which is actually 70 years after the incident of the well, and it says this. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi ben Ab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sabakai, the Hushatite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite. There was a man of great stature who also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now listen, I believe God is calling us as we 
close out 2015 and head into 2016. He's calling us to be a church that impacts our city, even impacts our world in the same way that David impacted the many people that engaged him in the course of their lives. And David impacted his world by impacting those who are closest to him. It's what we would call around here discipleship. It's not only just us following in pursuit of Jesus, but helping others follow in their pursuit of Jesus as well. And to help us be the kind of church that is awesome at making disciples, I want to look at three elements of how David impacted the lives of these men. I want to look at the life we live, the relationships we build, and the future God desires. Now, if you were here a few months ago, you may know that we support a missionary family in the nation of China. They were here just a couple of months ago giving an update. But what you may not know is how the gospel began to take root in the nation of China over 150 years before our friends ever showed up there. In the 1830s, a man by the name of George Mueller, who was a pastor in England, uh, became aware of the injustice that was taking place amongst orphaned children in the nation of Great Britain. Now, at the time, England as a country could only care for and house 3,600 orphaned children. And the result of that was over 8,000 children under the age of eight years old were being imprisoned for crimes that they had committed just in an attempt to survive. What George said, that's not right. It ought not to be that way. The gospel calls us to care for the widow and the orphan, so I'm going to do something about it. And he set out to begin raising money and awareness, eventually building additional homes that could then care for over 10,000 orphan children in his lifetime. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Over the course of that, of that, that pursuit, he did not solicit a single penny from anyone. He simply hit his knees in prayer and said, God, if this is what you have called me to, you will provide. And over the course of his life and that ministry, he prayed in the equivalent in today's currency of $2 million without asking a single person to give. Now, there was another young man in England around that era who had just recently become a Christian. And uh, at the age of 17, uh, in, in 1849, at the age of 17, this young man came to faith in Christ. He soon heard of George Mueller's uh, efforts and, and what he had been doing for the gospel, and he was inspired by it. And this young man by the name of Hudson Taylor said, I want my faith to count for something as well. And he set out to the nation of China, where God had called him. Now, soon after that, inspired by Mueller's life, Taylor launched what was called the Inland China Mission four years later at the age of 21. Taylor also did not ask a single person for money, but simply prayed for God's provision. Now, in addition to the death of four of his children and his wife, Taylor also saw 58 of his fellow missionaries martyred for their faith in the country of China. Listen to this. When Taylor arrived to China in 1853, there was less than 5,000 Christians. At the time of his death in 1905, there was more than 100,000 Christians. And today, the Inland Mission of China has close to 1,000 missionaries working in the organization and an estimated 150 million Christians in the nation of China. Now, all this because Taylor was impacted by the life of a man who wanted to care for some orphan children, who said, I want my faith to count for something. Now, a moment ago, we read an obscure passage about a man named Benaiah. 
It says, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, valiant man of Kabzeel, doer of great deeds, struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. He was renowned among David's mighty men, and David set him over his bodyguard. Now, Benaiah would not only go on to become the kind of chief of David's personal guard, but after David's passing, he stepped in and became general of, of uh, Solomon's army and Solomon's personal bodyguard as well. But how did Benaiah rise to such positions of prominence? Well, he rose because he single-handedly slayed two of Moab's greatest warriors and because he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And if we would have kept on reading in the passage, we'd also see that another thing that's reported Benaiah did was there was an Egyptian man who was close to 10 feet tall who had a big old long spear. And Benaiah went up to him without any weapons in his own hands, took the spear from the giant and killed him with his own spear. Now that is a bad man. But what kind of man chases after a lion into a snowy pit? I'll tell you what kind of man. The kind of man who believes he can kill that lion. Now, where on earth would Benaiah have gotten that idea? I mean, look at that. The average person, if, if it's me and I see a lion, whether the pit's snowy or not, there's two things that are crossing my mind. Run the other way and change my pants. I am not chasing that thing into a snowy pit. But not Benaiah. Benaiah says, oh, that cat's going down. Now, the only kind of person who thinks that way is a person who's been impacted and inspired by the life of someone else who's been there and done that. Which takes us back to the battlefield of Soka, where the Israeli army, which Benaiah would have been standing in, is confronted by a giant by the name of Goliath. Now, as scripture records, the Israel men, every man in the Israelite army was terrified and refused to go out on the battlefield. When up walks this little boy, this young man with a sling and five smooth stones, and he says, oh, I'm taking him down. And we know the story. David kills Goliath, hits Goliath in the head, takes his sword, cuts his own head off with it. But after that happened, what began to circulate amongst the camp of the Israelites was the story that preceded David showing up on the battlefield in the first place. And what we see is this. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, when Saul says, David, what makes you think you can defeat this giant? Here's David's response. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a what? A lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him and delivered out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, struck him and killed him. Listen, Benaiah didn't just watch David kill Goliath. He would have also heard the stories of David slaying the lions who came after his sheep. Listen, what spurred Hudson Taylor on to impact the nation of China against insurmountable odds? What spurred all the missionaries who came after Hudson Taylor to continue the work amidst all the persecution? The same thing that spurred Benaiah on to accomplish everything that God intended to do in and through his life. They saw others who were willing to persevere through incredibly difficult circumstances so that God's glory might be seen by others. See, feats that were considered impossible and foolish suddenly became obtainable because someone else had showed them what was possible with God. The church, this is the first step when it comes to being good at making disciples. 
not just relaying information to the world about Jesus, but living life in such a way that shows the gospel isn't just something that informs, but something that transforms. How do we do that? Well, there's three ways we do that. Number one, we have to be obedient. See, David was protecting his father's sheep simply because his father said, I need you to do it. Right? A shepherd in that day was a humiliating task. It was a dangerous task. It was a lonely task. Yet David did it faithfully. Hudson Taylor knew that what God had called him to in the nation of China was going to be difficult, virtually impossible. Yet even at the loss of family and friends and his own physical health, he obeyed and he went. Had either one of them let fear be an excuse to to not follow through on what God had called them to do, they would have missed out on the greatest adventure God had ever intended them to live. Listen, if we're going to be a church that transforms a city, we're going to have to answer the call of God and obey, even when it seems impossible. Number two, we've got to take risks. Let me just break some news to you. Following Jesus is not safe nor was it ever intended to be. It will require that we take risks. Listen, when David overhears Goliath taunting the Israelites, what is, he doesn't go, man, someone better do something about that. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something about that. I'm gonna take the risk. Now listen, he's a shepherd boy. Yes, he's killed lions and bears, that's cool. But he's stepping out onto a battlefield with a man twice his size, much more experienced in hand-to-hand combat. The odds of him walking off that field alive are slim. And yet David says, no, 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 God is with me. I'm going to obey and take a risk because I saw when I, when the lion and the bear came, God delivered them into my hands and therefore I have faith to take a risk to step out onto this battlefield because God's going to deliver this Philistine into my hands as well. Not only do we have to obey, we've got to take risks. And thirdly, we've got to pursue excellence. See, Paul says in Colossians 3, do all things to the glory of God. That means recognizing not only is life just a gift from God, but every opportunity, every circumstance, every situation is also a gift God has given us to represent his kingdom on this earth. See, David could have let the lion take the sheep. It was well within his rights as a shepherd. He wasn't required to risk his life. He could have let Saul deal with Goliath. He could have lived a life of luxury built on the backs of the people that he led as a king. But he didn't. He led with conviction. He served his people with excellence. And why? Because David understood that tending his father's sheep, fighting for his king's honor and respect, and leading his nation were all opportunities to glorify God and to make his glory known in the pursuit of excellence. We have to ask people, are we loving our families? Are we doing our jobs? Are we caring for our neighborhoods? with that same pursuit of excellence. Listen, people in this city are not looking for us to simply tell them what we know. They want to see whether or not we're going to live lives congruent with what we claim we believe. My hope is that we would follow Jesus as a church in such a way that inspires the people in our city to do the same. And to do that, we'll have to focus on point number two, the relationships we build. Now, the second story that we read of David's mighty men takes place after David has been anointed as king, 
but before he actually takes the throne. It's while he's still on the run from King Saul. If you're familiar with the story, Saul gets jealous of David, feels like David's threatening to take the throne, threatening the, the, the future of his family taking the throne. And so he goes after David in an attempt to kill him. Well, David and his mighty men go on the run. And they find themselves hiding out in the cave of Adullam. Now, hearing that Saul was on his way out and David was on his way in, the Philistines see an opportunity to cut right through the heart of Israel, cause division, create chaos, and get an upper hand between their war with the Israelites. And so they march right through the heart of the kingdom of Israel and find themselves in Bethlehem, which is what? The city of David. Now, the reason this background is important is because it helps us make sense of David's request and of why these three men would risk their lives to fulfill it. Let's go back to the request in chapter 23. It says, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Listen, David has been in this cave of Adullam for months. And there is an ample supply of water in this cave from what history records for us. So David isn't sitting here saying, man, I'm thirsty. I wish someone could get me a drink of water. But if that's not what he's saying, then what is he saying here? Well, think about it. God had made a promise to David. He said, David, I'm anointing you as king. You're going to rule over the people of Israel. And not only that, but your descendants will never cease to sit on the throne. That there is going to be one who comes through you who will be king of kings and lord of lords. And his throne, his kingdom will have no end. And yet David is living in a cave. Not even able to get a drink of water from the well in his own hometown. See, what David was ultimately thirsting for here wasn't water, it was hope. He had begun to lose hope in the promises of God. He began to lose hope in God's faithfulness to do what he said he was going to do. And as he sits with an enemy sitting in his hometown, him living in a cave, and he says, oh, that someone would fetch me a drink from the well in my hometown. What he's really saying is, oh, that my hope might be restored, that God's promise will come to pass. You can almost see in these three men, they, they overhear David saying this. I can just envision them looking to each other and kind of saying, oh, we got this. We got this. See, if they had thought David was just thirsty, if they would have just thought he was saying, I need a glass of water, they probably would have gone to the cave, got some water, brought it back and said, oh, king, today you drink from the cave, but tomorrow you drink from the well or something else Russell Crowish like that. But they didn't. They said, we know what needs to be done. And they cut their way through 20 to 30 Philistine soldiers, fill the skin with water, bring it back to David and set it at his feet. And then David does something that on the surface looks incredibly offensive. He pours it out on the ground. Now, what does this teach us about making disciples? Well, two things. First, if we want to impact people's lives with the gospel... You're going to have to let people in. See, again, if if these three men simply thought he was saying he was thirsty, they could have got water from the cave. That's not what they did. 
See, they knew what David was really saying. They, they knew the only thing that would restore David's hope and reignite the passion of his army was to go get a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem's gate. Now listen, there's only one way they could have known that. There's only one way they could have known what David was saying without him actually saying it. It's because they knew David's heart. So they knew the anguish and the frustration and the hopelessness he was experiencing. Because while in that cave, David is writing things like Psalm 142, where he says, with my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. See, David wasn't like many of us 21st century American Christians who think we have to walk around having our act together, having all the answers. Don't let anybody know something's wrong because I'm a varsity level Christian. I don't have problems. Now, David was courageous enough. David was secure enough in who God had called him to be to invite these men into the messiness of his life and say, this is where I'm struggling. This is what I'm wrestling with. This is what I long for. This is what I desire. So when he says, oh, that I might have a drink from the well at Bethlehem, these men knew exactly what he's saying because he had let them in. See, if we're going to lead people into a passionate pursuit of Christ, We've got to invite them into the kitchen table of our souls and not just leave them standing at the front door. Secondly, we have to redirect people's gaze. So it looks like an offensive dismissal of this amazingly courageous act was actually the most loving thing that David could have done. So you've heard stories, you've read books like the Iliad and the Odyssey, you've seen movies like Gladiator and 300 First century warfare for a a soldier to to overcome insurmountable odds at the request of his king, to to win a huge victory in honor of glory and of his king and his nation, to come back. He would have been welcomed back with a hero's welcome. When these three men walk back in with a camp holding their skin of water, those other soldiers would have been like, oh, those some bad men. They would have been high-fiving. They would have been celebrating. They would have been bowing down to them, not just to honor the soldiers, but the king for which they were willing to risk their lives. And David takes the water, and he pours it out on the ground in what Leviticus calls and refers to as a drink offering. It was an act of worship to God. In other words, David is saying, oh, as much as I appreciate what you've done for me, you're not worthy of that glory. I'm not worthy of that glory. There is only one who was worthy of the kind of glory you just exhibited. There's only one who's worth living and dying for. There was only one who has given you the physical stature to be the soldiers that you are. There's only one who was anointed and made me king. And he alone is worthy of the blood of your life. He alone is worthy of that sacrifice. And so he pours out the drink. And in doing so, he redirects the gaze of those three men and of every other soldier in that cave to remember who it is that is worthy of our praise and our adoration. So if we want to impact our culture, we must never forget who the glory belongs to. We must continually redirect the gaze of those we are walking with to remind them that whatever success they have achieved, whatever circumstance they go through, 
It's all for the glory of God alone. So when it comes to discipleship, it's tempting and it's easy to feel like, man, look, look what I've accomplished in this person's life. It's easy for the people we're leading and walking with to look at us and elevate us to some status of, of holier than thou and to begin to give us honor and glory. We must redirect their gaze. So no, 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 no. There is only one who is worthy of that. See, church, the moment we start living for the glory of man, we lose the ability to point people to the glory of God. And if we will let people into our lives and continue to redirect their gaze, we eventually will find ourselves building towards point number three, the future that God desires. Now, we fast forward in our passages to, to, de- to, to, to a place 40 years after the incident at the well. David is 70 years old at this point. He's been walking with these men for a few decades and the Philistines are still waging war. And it says this, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel and David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants who spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So we find David, the original giant killer, no longer able to do what he once was able to do. He's coming to the end of his life. He no longer has the physical strength to defeat these giants. And without hesitation and without even needing to be asked, These four men who once cowered in the presence of Goliath step in to finish what David had started. Now, you may be familiar with the term Morehouse men. It's a term coined by one of Morehouse College's greatest presidents, a man by the name of Benjamin Mays. There's a picture of Benjamin right there. Mays was born in the late 1800s to former slaves in South Carolina. He would go on to become an ordained Baptist preacher earning his master's and his Ph.D. in theology. And as a young adult, he determined to do everything he could in his strength to bring the gospel to bear on the fight for racial justice and equality in the South. Now, in pursuit of these goals, Mays accomplished many, many great things. He authored multiple books. He was a professor and on staff at multiple universities such as Howard and South Carolina State always striving to train and develop young men who would carry the torch of equality. But perhaps his greatest achievement was as the president of Morehouse University in Atlanta, Georgia. So May stepped into this position at Morehouse. Morehouse was in bad shape all around. Financially, culturally, it just wasn't doing well. But May stepped in. And he righted the ship and established a completely new culture on that campus. See, he didn't just want to educate young black men. He wanted to produce a generation of men who would impact their nation with the truth of the gospel. In his first speech to the incoming class of 1940, May said this, if Morehouse is to continue to be great, it must continue to produce outstanding personalities. And so the call to become a Morehouse man began to ring loud and clear. Now, here's how Mays defined a Morehouse man. He said, a Morehouse man is a man, highly edu- a highly educated black professional who was dedicated to the service of others in the name of Jesus. 
Now, here's why this is such a big deal, why I share this story. Because one of Dr. May's brightest students, a young man whom Dr. Mays would become a spiritual mentor to, a young man who once said of Dr. Mays, he is the ideal of what I wanted a minister to be, was a student by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. So what started as a vision that God had given Benjamin Mays years and years before was carried on by a young man he had mentored and discipled. Benjamin's impact on young Martin would eventually launch the civil rights movement of the 1960s. See, Benjamin knew what Isaac Newton, the great scientist, had once said, which was this, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. See, David had lived a life worth emulating. He had allowed these men into the deepest places of who he was, and now he had become the shoulders on which these men were able to stand. So yes, David's life was full of mistakes, it was full of regrets, full of sin. But through it all, he continued to chase after the heart of God and to lead, mentor, and pour out his heart into these mighty men. And those men would go on to help fulfill all the promises God had made to David that David wasn't able to see in his own lifetime. Listen, if we're going to be a church that impacts the world, we've got to realize that what God has called us to It's probably not going to be accomplished in our own lifetime. But through us, God will raise up and call others to carry on the torch of the gospel. Rather than being a microwave generation that expects results now, we have to live for something beyond our lifetime. Rather than seeking to become the ones who get all the credit, we've got to commit to becoming the shoulders on which other people are able to stand and achieve more than we ever could. That sounds simple enough, right? Live life worth emulating. Allow people to see into the deepest recesses of who you are and then help launch them into their destiny. Ready? Break. No. If you're anything like me, the thought of being that kind of a person and of us being that kind of a church is a weight that crushes you. And why is that? Listen, because I'm fully aware of my failures. I know all the things that I've done in my life that ought not to be emulated. I know all the excuses I give to keep people at arm's length, to keep up an, a, an opinion that I think will, will be good, good enough for them. I know all the jealousy that rages in my heart that says, I want to get the credit. I want to be the man. Rather than spurring others on to their greatness. So when I look at what making disciples is all about from these passages, I often want to just throw in the towel, grab a bowl of popcorn, and binge watch my favorite show on Netflix. But friends, we must keep going. We must not let apathy overtake us. We must trust like David did. That even in our failures, God is working out his kingdom, not just in us, but through us in the hearts of other people. But how? How do we do that? Well, the same way David did, by remembering the one who was with us. See, another psalm that David wrote was Psalm 23. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Who was with him? Jesus 
is with him. Jesus, the son of David, the fulfillment of God's promises to David, the king of kings, the one who did in full everything that David was only to do in part. The one who through his life, death, and resurrection defeated Satan, whom the Bible says prowls around like a what? A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus, who defeated the ultimate giants of sin and death, who mocked us as God's people so that we might obtain the victory that he alone obtained. And Jesus, who became the ultimate drink offering to point us back to the glory of the Father. In Psalm 22, David, while writing a prophetic picture of what the Messiah would accomplish on the cross, says this, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts within my breast. Friends, the call to make disciples is a costly one. It will challenge you in ways that you have never been challenged. You will experience frustration and rejection when the people you've poured out your heart to leave or don't show up. It'll cause every ounce of pride, insecurity, and fear that resides in your heart to rise to the surface. Oh, but it is worth the pain. It is worth the price. To see God's faithfulness not just revealed to us, but revealed to others through us. But we must remember who it is that we're living for, who it is we're following, who it is we're leading others in pursuit of. The one who promises to be with us, Jesus. Matthew 28, some of Jesus' last words, he leaves us with are this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, this call to make disciples is a call to something way bigger than ourselves. Something that's going to cost us in many ways. But it's also in this call that Jesus promises to be with us. It's one of the few places in scripture where Jesus says, I promise to be with you to the end of the age when you are about my business of making disciples. When you seek to live a life worth emulating, not in your own strength and your own ability, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you you seek to let people into the recesses of your heart, when you seek to take risks, when you seek to obey, when you seek to push others farther than you could ever hope to dream to accomplish yourself. Jesus says, oh, friends, in that moment, you are never more like me. Because is that not what I have done for you? Did I not show you what the kingdom was like? Did not invite you into the depths of my pain and agony? Did I not do for you what you could not do for yourself, that you might be going to become what you were intended to be all along? 
Y'all, it's challenging. But Jesus is faithful. And when he says, I am with you always to the end of the age, when he says, I am with you in this call, I am walking with you in the difficulties of it, man, you can take it to the bank. Because he is faithful. Church, as we enter into 2016, I'm praying that God will give us a renewed passion a renewed zeal to take the call to go make disciples, to not not just be a great Sunday morning experience, not to just have a good community group uh, system going, not just put on good events or or have good friendly relationships. I love all of that about this church. We're doing all of that and forsaking the call to make disciples. We're building a monument to ourselves. And what God has called Mosaic Church to be in the city of Austin It's a church that redirects the gaze of this city back to the God who made it. Father, would you ignite in us anew a passion for the people that you're calling to come by your side, the people you're calling into your kingdom, Lord, that you would put a burden on our heart for our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family, that you would strengthen us to remember that, God, what you've called us to, you're with us in it because you are faithful. God, in light of your faithfulness, in this next year, would you empower us and move in our hearts to help us be a church that is faithful to the call of making disciples. Whatever fear rises up in us when we think about that, Lord, whatever excuses we can come up with, And those are the lions, those are the giants, those are the things that roar at us to intimidate us, to get us to shrink back into our cave. But I thank you, Jesus, that we can look to you, the lion killer, the giant slayer, the drink offering poured out on our behalf. And have our passion, our zeal, and our confidence and our faith reunited with you. God, make us a church that's beyond ourselves or that's about our Father's business. Lord, I pray for those in this room today, God, that they're not following you. Or if they're not pursuing you, they're chasing after the things of this world that you would move even now in their hearts. So I've called you to something way greater than that come into relationship with me through the blood of my son. Come and know the one who made you and come and live the great adventure I made you for. For those of us who do know you, help us to be faithful and obedient to the call to make disciples. In Jesus' name.